week's reading for the 15th Sunday after Pentecost comes out of Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Then Jesus said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an account of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now that my master is taking the position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he asked the first, How much do you owe my master? He answered, hundred jugs of olive oil. <clears throat> he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 50. Then he asked another, how much do you owe? He replied, a hundred containers of wheat. So he said to him, take your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into the eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, folks, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. If you are not familiar, I have not always been a pastor. My undergrad degree was in turf grass management. I actually managed golf courses for a couple of years after college. And then I kind of bounced around through some different career choices for a few years through my mid-20s before I landed on this whole pastor gig. And the one job that I actually held the longest, I was in the trucking industry. I was something known as a trucking broker. Now, let me tell you how this works. The idea of being a trucking broker is essentially a game in which customers had freight to move. They had goods that they had to move, and they needed trucks to do it. And then there were trucking companies who wanted to get the loads and get paid to move them. My job was to basically match them up. Now, here was the game that I had to play. I wanted to charge the company as much as possible to get their freight moved. And then I wanted to pay the truck as little as possible in order to get that freight moved so that everything in the middle, everything, everything that was left over after I had gotten paid by the company and had paid the truck would benefit the company that I worked for and I would also get a percentage of that as my paycheck. So that's how I made my living. And I got to admit, I was not really well suited for this. I actually did it for a long time. I spent about five years doing it. But it never really sat really well with me. And I can remember in particular one type of load. I didn't do a lot of these, but I can remember they were very, very desirable because this particular type of load, it was some construction materials that came up out of Texas and went all the way up into northern Montana, almost all the way up to the Canadian border. And for whatever reason, the company really wanted to get these moved in a timely way, and they were a very desirable thing for the trucking companies. So I was able to charge a lot and pay very little. My best percentage 
was we kept, or my company kept, over 55% of the total. From, a, from, from the standpoint of business, that was a win. But again, it felt kind of icky to me. And overall, the whole thing always felt kind of icky. I always felt like I was taking advantage of, of someone over on this side, and at times taking advantage of the people on this side in order to make a living. But some would argue that's business. That's the way business works. And it really kind of is, if we think about it. It's about how can I get the dollars out of your pocket and put them into mine. Now, in my work as a pastor, I'm also still kind of familiar with the idea of business and finances and economics and all of that. Within the work that I do, I also work with our elected council, and there are financial-type things, business-type things that we do. Now, on a yearly basis, here in a church our size, or the church that, that I'm in right now, we're dealing with numbers in the realm of about $150,000 to $175,000. No small amount of money, but from my perspective. Additionally, I spent about four years serving on the council of something called a synod. This is the geographic region of our denomination, so a slightly bigger thing. And in that, we were dealing with numbers, budgetary numbers, in the realm of somewhere between about 750 up to maybe like $900,000, pushing that million-dollar mark. Again, no small amount of money by my perspective, but something that I can wrap my head around. You know, when I think about things like upwards of a million dollars, while that does seem like a lot of money to me, I can understand it, I can wrap my head around it. But sometimes as business continues to get bigger, as, as dollar amounts continue to get bigger, things begin to get really, really hazy. Think about big business. We have that billion dollar number gets thrown around a lot, values in the billions. And we can go even bigger than that if we consider, say, take, for instance, the, uh, the national budget of the third largest country in the world constituting about, you know, what, 300 million people or so, and we get up into the trillions of dollars. Now, if you are anything like me, once you hit a million, you start getting into those illions, it's almost just too big to even begin to wrap our heads around. When we're talking about monetary value, monetary amounts, I just, I can't really begin to grasp the enormity of some of these amounts of money. And so in an effort to try and think about it, I, I decided, can I put it in terms of something that's a little easier to understand? Would, would there be some sort of comparison that I could do? And so I did a little bit of work and I thought, let's do it this way. Let's consider the passage of time because that's something that, that I think we can begin to understand a little bit better. If we were to compare $1 with one second, $1 equals one click of the second hand on your watch. Let's do a little bit of math. A million seconds is the equivalent of about 12 days. 12 days, not really very long, not even two weeks. If we were to wind the calendar back 12 days, it would take us to the first couple of days of September, not very far back. Easy to remember because it's not very long ago. But what if we change that million to a billion? Do you have any idea how much time is a billion seconds? A million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds, I want to look to make sure I have it right, is 31 years. 31 years. If we wound the calendar back 31 years, a billion seconds, it would take us to 1991. I am 43 years old right now. A billion seconds ago, I was 12 and in sixth grade. 
That's how much a billion seconds is. But if we, what if we went one step larger? What if we said a trillion seconds? How long is a trillion seconds? A million seconds is 12 days. A billion seconds is 31 years. But if we went back a trillion seconds, it is almost 32,000 years. If we went back that far, 30,000 BC, humanity is still in the Stone Age. A million seconds, a billion seconds, a trillion seconds. Now let's convert that back into money. That amazingly huge difference. And let's think about the history of wealth. According to a little bit of research I did, the first billionaire on the planet was registered in roughly the year 1911, a little over 110 years ago. The projections currently show, expectations show, that within the next two years, we will have the world's first trillionaire, with a few more to follow in the, up, in the, in the years after that, within the next five or six years. They estimate we'll have not only one, but a few trillionaires. Now, I don't know about you, but when I begin to think about the, the work, the, the effort, the, just the, the movement of that much wealth out of countless people to put it into the heading or under the control of a single person, I can only begin to ask myself, how does that even happen? What needs to be exploited? What sort of system needs to occur in order for all of that to fall in, in, in the pocket of one person? I mean, think about that. One person could spend $1 every second for 32,000 years and not run out. Does that even seem like it should be possible? And yet here it is. And some will say, some will argue that that's just the reality of this free market system that we're a part of. That's the reality of business. Now, every one of these potential trillionaires are part of big, big business. And it just makes me wonder, how does the machine work like that? And I also wonder, is this something new? Is this something that's come on in the last 100 years that made it possible to go from a billionaire to now almost having a trillionaire? And we can see that the answer to that question is no, it's not anything new if we consider this oddball teaching from Jesus today. Jesus is revealing something, a truth, that this system that we're talking about today has existed long before now. And it was something that he dealt with then. And a little bit of a dive into his cultural at the time begins to reveal that. Now, I've got to give you some cultural background. First century Palestine, Holy Land, Israel, whatever you want to call it, was controlled by the Roman Empire. They were the superpower of the day. Now, the Roman Empire did a lot of good in the world. And I don't want to say that they didn't. But they were also notorious when they would take over a, a, a part of the world, when they would take over a region, they would come in and do everything they could to exploit the dickens out of that place. The people and the resources and the money. All of it would be, would, would be exploited by the Roman Empire. And they did it through taxes. Now, here's the way taxes tended to work. They would charge really, really high taxes. And if you couldn't pay it, they would take your property. They would take your land. They might even take you and sell you into slavery in order to pay these taxes. So they would exploit greatly the people that were there. Now, the region of Israel is important to consider as well. 
If you're not familiar with the way that the region works, in the northern part of the area where, is Gal- where we find Galilee, which you might remember as Jesus' home stomping grounds, that's pretty lush, pretty fertile because there's a lot of precipitation that comes in off the Mediterranean Sea. But the farther south and west you went, the drier and rockier and, and more mountainous it would become. But that's also where a lot of the cities were, including the city of Jerusalem. Now, in that time, the farmers would live in the north, and there was a lot of production that would go on there. Whereas a lot of the rich people would live in the cities, and that also included the Romans, the the bigwig Romans who were there. Now, considering the whole realm of taxation, those with means came in acting as personal saviors for those in the north who were being exploited. And when they could not pay their taxes, these people with means would say, hey, we don't want you to lose your land and your livelihood, so we'll make you a deal. We'll pay your taxes for you in exchange. You will give us the deed to your property, but we'll let you continue to still live on it. We'll let you continue to farm it. And all you have to do is is pay us some tribute every single year. We have a word for this. It's known as sharecropping. Not, Not something unfamiliar to us. But in addition to that, This was a way that the people could could have their taxes paid and they could continue to try and grind out a living, but it would cost them in terms of production. Now, every single year, those people with means would want to get their tribute. They would want to get their cash rent or their share crop or whatever you want to call it. But it was kind of dangerous for them. They probably weren't overly popular with the people who they were exploiting and trying to get as much out of them as possible. So it would be foolish, if not downright dangerous, for them to go to the north and try and collect. So they would send managers whose job, or or stewards whose job was to make that collection and to pull as much from those people as possible. And then when those resources came to the people with means, to the people who were rich, they would turn around and take that wheat and take that wine and take that olive oil and they would sell it off to the Romans so they could have all their banquets and parties and everything else. So they would exploit the resources that were coming to them, and then they would sell them a profit lining their own pockets. They were taking full advantage of a system of which they were a part. Sound familiar? That lies at the heart of this parable that Jesus tells. Now, folks, I got to tell you, this parable is a head scratcher. I do not like it. And every single time I, I, I happen upon it, when the lectionary brings it back around, I just kind of roll my eyes because this one is weird. Oftentimes, the parables of Jesus kind of give us some sort of different way of looking at the world, or they give us some sort of moral lesson, and we can take all that from it. This one's just odd. It almost seems like Jesus is fully acknowledging the reality of this this economic world that they were all familiar with. And he tells this story. There was a rich man who had a manager. And a report came to the man that the manager was squandering his property. And so he calls him in. And he says, what is this I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your stewardship or of your management because you can't be my manager any longer. You're about to be fired. This guy realizes that his world is about to be pulled out from under him. And he's honest with himself for a moment. And he says, "Uh, I'm not strong enough to dig. Manual labor is no good for me. I'm ashamed to beg. What am I going to do? I'm about to lose all that I have. I'm about to lose all these resources that I'm used to having. And then he has this epiphany. I know what I'll do. And he's going to shift things around. He's going to stop taking advantage of the little guy. And he's going to start taking advantage of his boss. And so he calls in the debtors. And in an example of him being a lousy manager, he doesn't even know how much they owe him, does he? 
You, how much do you owe? Well, I owe 100 jars of olive oil. Ah, okay, I want you to take your, your, take your bill of sale and rather than 100, make it 50. And, and you, second guy, how much do you owe? Well, I owe 100 measures of wheat. Ah, take your 100 and make it 80. And then he probably is saying in the background, remember that I did you this favor. He's doing this for his own benefit, isn't he? He's not doing it to benefit the little guy, even though the little guys might ultimately be benefiting from it. He's trying to save his own skin so that when the rug is pulled out from under him, he will still have friends who are now beholden to him because he did them this favor, and they're going to take care of him. Now, the really weird part about this is then the, man, not the, the manager does this, and the master commends him for it. The master just got swindled, and he's like, you did good. Good job. And then Jesus seems to build on this, and he says, the children of this age are more crafty. They are more shrewd than the children of light, a.k.a. the people who live in the world and fully embrace the world are more crafty than the people who are trying to follow the good news of the gospel. And then he says this other part that really makes me scratch my head. And he says, so make friends for yourself by ways of dishonest wealth. So when it is taken away from you, they will welcome you into their eternal homes. I don't know about you, but I listen to this parable of Jesus and I am at a loss for what to make of it. And I'm not the only one. And if you're at a loss with it, you aren't either. This parable has baffled scholars and commentators and interpreters for years and years and years. And the jury is out on what this one means. And there are countless different interpretations. And I'm going to offer you just one. I'm not saying this is the right one, but this is one way of looking at it. This manager, this steward, realizes that he is a part, he's one cog in the midst of a big machine. He's not at the bottom and he's not at the top. He exists solely to line the pockets of those who exist above him. And he has benefited from it and he's gotten used to it and that's why he's so scared when all of a sudden he realizes that he is expendable and that the, the wealth and the resources that he has come to know can be taken away from him at any moment. And so he changes his perspective. Again, he's not doing this for moral reasons. He's doing it to save his own keister. But he decides in this moment, he's going to continue to use the position he's in to rather than line the pockets and benefit the people above him, he's going to give a benefit to the people below him. He starts to side with the little guy, even if it's for personal benefit. I don't think Jesus is actually commending that action. I think Jesus is acknowledging the reality of this great big economic machine that existed in his day and I believe also still exists in our day today. So what do we make of that? Well, if we look at the last part, we begin to see Jesus kind of shift a little bit and maybe give some teachings that seem a little more Jesus-like. When he starts to say that you cannot serve two masters, you cannot serve God and wealth you, because you will either love one and hate the other or you will you will be betrothed to one and you will despise the other. Now, it's interesting the way it's actually worded. You can't serve God and mammon. Mammon is an old Hebrew word that basically means stuff, stuff of value. You can't place all of your eggs in the basket of stuff and value and wealth because that will be taken from you. I believe what Jesus is maybe telling us here 
is not so much that you have to completely take yourself out of that system that exists because we're all a part of it. But I think he's telling us, be aware, are you trying to serve God in your actions or are you trying to serve and perpetuate this, this greater machine that exploits those below us and lines the pockets of those who are above us? I don't know about you, but that's pretty countercultural, isn't it? And that kind of seems to go against the idea that we all exist to try and get dollars out of their pocket and put it into mine. I don't know. Maybe as you listen to me say this, you think I sound like a socialist. I don't really care. Jesus is pointing out the reality of the system, and that system still exists. So what do we make of this? And is there good news here? And I believe that there is, but we got to look bigger in order to find it. This particular teaching, very, very troublesome. But this teaching, this parable, is part of a larger time of teaching that Jesus is doing. It's actually a period where he gives us five parables. Now, we heard two of them last week. We referenced the third one, and the other one's coming up next week. But what we heard last week was the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin, and we referenced the parable of the prodigal son. Three different parables in which an individual will go searching for that which is lost but of value to them. And when the lost is found, there is great cause for celebration. Now, the importance of those parables is the reason that Jesus gives them in the first place. He has been criticized because he is spending time with sinful people like tax collectors. The thing to remember about the tax collectors is they're kind of like the stewards in this story. They're the ones employed by the Roman Empire to exploit their countrymen and line their own pockets while then paying the, the resources, the taxes on to the Romans. They are despised because of this. They are looked down because of this. But these tax collectors have listened to Jesus and they have come near to hear them. Now, we don't know if they changed their ways, but they are listening to his teachings. They are listening to the gospel. They are listening to him line out this new way of being in the old world. And Jesus also says, there is greater rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need it. Jesus is reminding us through this larger teaching that we have the opportunity every single day to turn away from this junk over here and back to the good life that God desires for us in the midst of all this stuff. Now that doesn't take us out of it, but it just reminds us that there is another way of looking at all this and another way of considering all this and that, that this is all temporary. That, I believe, is the takeaway. That, I believe, is what we remember, that we all have been given the opportunity to repent of the junk that we're all a part of, and it's made possible through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, offered to us by God who loves us and claims us and wants us freed from all this junk. That's the gospel. And what we take from this larger teaching, this is our reality, but there is another way of looking at it. This is true for you, it's true for me, it's true for all people. And we get to live into that reality. And when we do, when we have our perspective changed because of the gift of God's grace and love and mercy that's given to every single one of us, and we live our lives in reality of that, then that means we treat all this different over here. That's the gospel, and I believe that is what we can take from this teaching today.